Acts chapter 16, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 15. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Amen. Father God, we uh, come before your word, and it is our uh, desire to reverence it, to live it out, and by the power of your grace, we pray that you would enable us to do so. We love you. We commit this time to you as we reflect on your word, as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. I think this story is a a lovely example of the sovereignty of God's grace and missions. It ends with the Lord opening up her heart and setting her apart by His grace, but it begins with God sovereignly preparing for this gospel message to come to her. There are only three conversions in this chapter. There's a conversion of Lydia and her house being set aside. There's the demon-possessed slave girl. And then there is the Philippian jailer. And I'm going to focus probably a third of the sermon or more on the uh, regeneration of Lydia because I think there's a lot of um, neat lessons we can learn from that. But first of all, let's look at the context. Paul's team has come a long way in order to minister to Lydia. Uh, And I want you to just imagine for a moment that you were a member of that team And uh, the June earlier, which is just a little over two months ago, you had (coughs) set out wanting to travel to Laodicea and then on to Ephesus. But in verse 6, God says, no, you cannot uh, preach the word in Asia. And uh, you may have been a little bit confused about that because it seemed like the perfect place to be. In fact, later on, he is going to be planting churches in those two uh, major cities. And it may seem like wasted time, but you submit to the Lord, you submit to Paul's leadership, and you start traveling up north. You say, if there's any places uh, uh, good, uh, you know, Bithynia is a great place to go. We could uh, preach the gospel there. But God in verse 7 says, no, you cannot enter into that country. And the question is, why? There's lost people there who are in need of the gospel, and God will not permit them to preach the gospel in that uh, area. Well, it just reflects... Uh, one little aspect of the sovereignty of God and missions. He is the one who directs when and where people go. All of these team members are hyped for missions. They want to preach, but they've got to keep their lips zipped for two months. And so they are. there they are, uh, just south of Bithynia, when God tells them that they can't go any further north. And if you looked at the road maps back then, there's only one direction that they can go. They cut straight across Asia over toward Troas. And they know they're not going to be able to preach the gospel in Troas because that's part of Asia as well. But when they get to Troas, they pick up a new team member who proves to be an absolutely uh, wonderful 
a worker on their team, and it's Luke. And uh, we know that uh, it is Luke because in verse 10, he uses the word we, and from this point on, he includes himself in the narrative. Uh, But this whole time, they've not been able to uh, uh, preach when they're going across to uh, Bithynia, it takes quite a long time to travel across there. And you tell a team of preachers you can't be preaching on this whole trip. That's a tough message for them to swallow. But they totally submit to God's sovereignty. They think, okay, whatever God says, we're going to go uh, for that. Even the wasted time, the wasted days are not wasted in God's uh, plan. And we'll be seeing in a moment one of the reasons why God had them going north. Take a look at verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. Well, finally, they're out of Asia. They go across the Dardanelles Straits. They spend a night on the mountainous island of Samothrace, and then they sail on to Neapolis, which is the port city for Philippi. Verse 12 says, And from there to Philippi, and I want to spend a little bit of time giving some background on this city because it shows the sovereignty of God in preparing Europe for the next 1,500 years of missions. Uh, Philippi was another 10 miles inland uh, and going on the Via Ignatia. It's a fairly easy trip. And Luke comments about Philippi, says, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony? Now, every word in that statement is important. Uh, There are liberals who have uh, many times scoffed at this, and they say, Philippi is not the capital of Macedonia. Luke doesn't even know what he's talking about, and they try to discredit this account, but he didn't say it was the capital. He said it was the foremost city, and it was indeed the foremost city in terms of its uh, glorious history, in terms of Roman administration, in terms of finances, and in terms of influence. It was a massive gold mining uh, area that uh, put all kinds of wealth into Rome's coffers. It produced uh, 1,000 talents of gold every year. That's 2,632,000 ounces of gold every year. It was a leading medical school uh, that was there. Now, this was where many of the best Roman officers were retired, and Rome gave them beautiful estates in in Philippi. So it was an area where some of the most influential people in Rome uh, were camped out. And so it is a city of influence. But it was also an extremely hostile city to what the Romans considered cults, which would be Christianity and Judaism and anything that didn't worship their gods. Very, very hostile. This is one of the reasons I believe that the women are praying outside of the city. And Paul usually tried to find a city, uh, a synagogue within every city that he went to because that was the most natural uh, vehicle through which the gospel could spread because these people have already known the Old Testament. A very nice base to jump off from. But there was no such synagogue, and we'll see why in a moment. And verse 12 ends by saying that we were staying in that city for some days. They apparently were just not having any success during that time. No converts, they're preaching, and nothing is happening. And just to jump ahead by anticipation for a moment, um, they were only, before they get kicked out of the city, only able to win three people. Lydia, as I mentioned, and the uh, demon-possessed slave girl, and the Philippian uh, jailer. So it doesn't seem like a very auspicious beginning uh, for this trip into Europe. And if you were on that team, would you have been disappointed? 
You know, all this travel, all this work, all this time and expenditure with so few results. Well, Paul and Silas are not discouraged in the least. In fact, down in verse 25, even when they're in jail, they're praying to God and singing hymns of praise to God. Why? Because they fully trust the sovereignty of God. There are no wasted moments in God's plan. Just as an example, we've already seen that Paul's sickness led to all kinds of churches being planted in Galatia that wouldn't have happened apart from that sickness. Uh, Paul's quick travel on this trip here in Asia helped him to spot a number of areas that he could later plant churches in his third missionary journey. I'm sure he was taking notes this whole time. And even though the beginnings in Philippi seem small, we know that this wealthy businesswoman becomes a key inroad into an influential area, the business world, including other areas of this uh, city that were very influential. And the the conversion of the jailer later on in the chapter gets him into government circles as well. Now, if you can penetrate business and you can penetrate government, you've got two of the leverage points which can flip a a country. Philippi becomes one of the healthiest and strongest of the New Testament churches. Now, we know this from hindsight, but Paul and Silas and the rest of his team, they don't know that. And yet they're able to completely trust God that He knows what is best and they're going to submit to uh, what He is planning to do. Uh, I think they would have been pretty excited if they could have seen the momentous changes that were going to result from Philippi because what was happening here is this is the tiny tip of a, uh, of a massive fulcrum that uh, will completely, over the next very few years, completely bring every nation in, in Europe uh, to Christianity and then through Europe bring evangelism to the rest of the world. <clears throat> One mission speaker said this, as we look back across the intervening 20 centuries, we see that this is one of the most important events of all time. It changed the whole course of Western civilization. Perhaps no single event since the cross of Christ has so affected the world as Paul's seemingly unpretentious decision to cross a narrow neck of water. Now, I bring all of that up because it's very easy for us to get discouraged over small beginnings. Uh, We get discouraged over detours and financial setbacks and slowdowns that the Lord is orchestrating into our lives. But if we would study His sovereignty... Even when those things come against us, we'd get excited and say, okay, I'm wondering what the Lord's going to do on this because God is going to be doing something great. He's in charge. There is nothing outside of His control. Zechariah 4 verse 10 calls us to not despise the day of small things. You see, it's not the size of the things or the events or the cities that matters. It's the greatness of the God who controls all those things. Amen? Okay. Second unlikely thing in this passage is the Gangaides River. Uh, They hadn't been doing too well in the city. They couldn't find a synagogue. So they travel uh, one and a quarter miles outside of the city gates to the banks of the river. And the question is, why would they do that? If you look at verse 13, it gives us some hints. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women uh, who met there. Two things to note, he couldn't find a single Jewish man. And I don't believe that these were Jewish women. These were proselytes. They were Gentile. Actually, they weren't even proselytes yet. They were Gentile God-fearers 
who were worshiping the God of Israel but had not yet been converted. And given the size of that city, that is remarkable. That ought to be something that we take note of. Second, he speaks of it as being customary for prayer to happen beside the river in such circumstances as these. Why would it be customary? And there are commentators uh, that doesn't make any sense. What custom is that? Well, I found a decree that uh, Josephus talks about. It was a Jewish decree that if there is no synagogue in a city, they've got to have some way for Jews to be able to find each other. And so the decree said that when there is no synagogue... Jews every Sabbath need to go by the waterside and uh, have a prayer meeting. And if just be there by yourself if there aren't any other Jews, but eventually other Jews will gather together and it will take ten men to be able to form a synagogue. And so it is a very logical place for Paul to go to try to find uh, some people on the Sabbath. Now a second reason why they met outside the city may have been because of persecution. The year before, which was the year uh, AD 49, Emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews out of Rome because he claimed that they had made a religious disturbance. And Acts 18 verse 2 mentions that edict as the reason why Aquila had to leave Rome. Now, here's why this is significant. Luke mentions here that this is a Roman colony. Colonies were treated as being outposts of Rome. They were districts directly under the control of Rome, just like Washington, D.C. is a district that's directly under the control of the United States uh, Congress. And so it is almost certain that when the decree came that all Jews had to be kicked out of Rome, all Jews had to be kicked out of every colony, every district, because what happens in Rome has to happen in the colonies. They're seen as being part of uh, the the capital city of uh, Rome. And that helps to explain verses 20 through 21, which we'll look at later. When Paul and Silas are dragged before the authorities in those verses, exactly the same charges are brought against them as were brought against the Jews in Rome. In other words, they didn't want any Jews in this city. Uh, They they considered them uh, to be uh, malcontents. And so the likelihood is that any Jewish population that had been present in the city uh, was kicked out and had to go to some other city in, in Macedonia. So if there are no Jews in, in Philippi, who are these women? Well, some of the commentators believe that these are Gentile God-fearers. Uh, they weren't Jews yet because they hadn't converted, but they were worshiping the true God. And this is a technical term that's used for them, God-fearers. But because they hadn't converted yet, the Romans wouldn't have tried to kick them out. They would still consider them to be Romans. John Polehill says, If there were no Jews present and all the women were Gentile God-fearers like Lydia, this may have made their gathering even more suspect in the city. Now, just as a side note, I think God had orchestrated this kicking of the Jews out because God wanted the strongest possible base to be able to penetrate Europe Every other church that had Jews present in, that, in their cities was just plagued with Judaizing problems. And so by kicking out all of these Jews out of that place, God establishes a church that doesn't have the typical problems that are elsewhere. It's a, it makes it very strong uh, for, uh, for reaching out. Now, because of the edict, Paul knows the likelihood of finding Jews Praying by the river is rather slim, but when he goes to investigate, he doesn't even find men, he just finds some Gentile women. 
And yet, this is God's penetration point into Europe. Out of weakness, God makes His strength uh, to shine. Out of the most unlikely circumstances, God is going to build up one of the strongest, if not the strongest, churches in the New Testament. God is sovereign. Now, the third unlikely thing that we see here is who gets converted. It's a single mom. And I love the way that God works. Uh, Paul probably had you know, his plans, and we need to have plans, of what's the most likely place to, to, to be able to affect the city, you know, looking at the leverage points. But God many times surprises us as to what He decides to do. We have our goals in Presbytery, where we're going to plant churches, and lo and behold, they never get planted. God springs up churches elsewhere in His sovereign will. And that's what's happening here. Look at verses 14 through 15. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now there are three things that make Lydia's house an unlikely base of operations. First, she's a single mom. Second, her main home is not in this city. It's smack dab in the middle of Asia. That's where Thyatira was, uh, which means she's a foreigner. She's not going to have the kind of influence a Roman citizen uh, right there would have. Uh, third, she was friendly to Judaism, which would make her somewhat suspect in that city, at least if they knew about uh, her friendliness to Judaism. But I want you to think about what God was orchestrating here, because it really is neat. First, to be a seller of purple from Thyatira meant that this woman was quite wealthy. Paul needed finances. And uh, she's going to be a supporter of Paul from this time forward. Second, this was a product that only the wealthy in the city could afford. And Romans loved purple clothing. And so she has contact with all of the most influential people in the city of Thyatira. Third, because this is her second home and she is traveling back and forth from Thyatira to Philippi, she, there is a ready-made uh, place by which a church can be planted in Thyatira without Paul even stepping foot into that city. Okay, God said you can't preach in Asia. Well, God's going to be sending somebody over into Thyatira and very, very quickly a church is established in Thyatira. In fact, uh, Revelation writes one of the letters to the church in Thyatira, which is well established already. That's 16 years later. So very quickly the gospel spreads to Thyatira. Fourth, because of her business connections, which were obviously international, there are numerous other contacts that uh, Paul is going to be able to make through Lydia. So from hindsight, she was one of the best contacts that God could have introduced him to in that whole city. And even though he is not going to be able to stay with her very long, he gets kicked out of the city pretty quickly, because of her various houses that she's got in these places where she does this selling and this trading, she, he's got ready-made bases of operation for reaching out. This is just fantastic. And so God was sovereign over every aspect of the trip. He was sovereign over finding this woman. 
If she had been traveling to one of her distribution points when he came here, he would never have met her. And so both have to be in the right place at just the right time. God was sovereign over the success that Lydia had, the influence she could exert, the basis of operation that um, she had in Europe and Asia. He was sovereign over the fact that she was interested in Judaism but not interested enough to get converted because she would have been kicked out of the city then if she had done that. God was sovereign over the fact that, that uh, other Jews were kicked out. She was not. And then finally, God was sovereign over the nature and timing of Lydia's conversion. I want to spend the rest of the sermon uh, looking at this marvelous story. Notice that verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, God could have opened her heart earlier, but He chose not to. He could have opened the heart of the other women in this prayer meeting, but He chose not to. He could have given success to Paul and their team in the preaching that they did earlier, but He chose not to. Out of the millions of people in this city, God chose sovereignly to pluck this one lady out and the slave girl and the Philippian jailer. Now, she no doubt had heard the word many, many times before, but for the first time, her heart was open and she was riveted to the message of Paul. She couldn't help but listen. Her concentration was right there. Why? Because the Word of God had come to life within her and God had brought her to salvation. But God was sovereign in choosing her. As Romans 9 says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Therefore, He has mercy on whom He wills and whom He wills, He hardens. This is amazing grace. And if you think of the cross of Christ, you'll have a picture of what God does throughout all of history. There are two thieves who are on each side of Jesus, and both thieves are almost identical. They're both criminals. They both start off mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. And to me, it's an amazing thing, the kind of mockery that they give, the blasphemy they both give against Christ that He would save uh, them. You cannot say, oh, one thief must have had a soft heart and the other thief you know, had a hard heart. They both had hard hearts. They had hearts that were closed to God's gospel. And yet, because one thief was an elect person, he could not die until God had sovereignly captured his heart and brought him into the kingdom. That's what's happening to Lydia here. Uh, Lydia is chosen to salvation, and to salvation she has to come. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into that phrase. When verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart, it implies that her heart had been closed, right? If he opened her heart, it had to have been closed. Now, sure, she may have been a wonderful lady to hang around with, but she had a closed heart. She may have gone to church all of the time, but she had a closed heart, okay? Apart from God's grace... All hearts are closed to God. They cannot seek after God. We speak of this as the depravity of man, the bondage of the will, uh, the hardness of the heart. Even the most religious of men and women have hearts that are totally closed, totally impregnable to the gospel until God does a heart transplant within them. Their hearts are closed. Now, they may be caring parents like Lydia appears to be, but their hearts are closed. They may attend prayer meetings like Lydia was attending prayer meeting here, and yet their hearts are closed. Now, if you looked at Lydia back then, you might have thought, there's no way she is depraved. She's a nice lady. She, she's so kind to people. She's uh, sensitive to God. She's worshiping God. 
And yet this scripture indicates that her heart was so tightly slammed shut that it would take a sovereign work of God's grace within her to open her heart to God's grace. Now, why don't you flip with me to Genesis? We're going to take a little detour here on uh, some passages that talk about closed hearts and how God opens the hearts of the elect. Turn, first of all, to Genesis 6 and verse 5. And this describes the state of every man, woman, and child that died in the flood. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It says there was no good in man, only evil continually. What does Isaiah 64 say? It says all our righteousness, not some, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, even the good things that the unregenerate do are so defiled and tainted by sin, they are unacceptable to God. Okay, take a look at Genesis 8 and verse 21, just in case you think this is only adults. Uh, Genesis 8, verse 21 Uh, Noah has just done a sacrifice before the Lord. and It says, The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. From childhood, man's heart is evil. This is why Isaiah 58, I mean not Isaiah, Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Okay, though human hearts can manufacture all kinds of counterfeit religion, God still says they are closed tightly shut against true submission to Him. Okay, look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and uh, verse 29. This is God lamenting. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Okay, here it says, without an opened heart, they cannot fear God. They cannot keep God's commandments. They cannot escape from God's judgment. Okay, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 29 and verse 4. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. I want you to notice that God is the giver of the heart that can perceive, that can hear with hearing ears, that can see with spiritual eyes. And yet this verse talks about God's sovereignty. It says God has decided not to give them such a heart. He he, he just says He's not given you a heart to this day. Look at Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. There's heart surgery, okay? Will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What this is indicating is that when God does do a heart transplant, those people will always irresistibly come to God. Faith will irresistibly flow out of regeneration. Okay, take a look at uh, 1 Samuel 10 and verse 9. 
What's the only way we can live? Well, it's by having heart surgery. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 9. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart and all those signs came to pass that day. God gave him another heart. An old heart cannot respond properly. God has to do a heart transplant. Romans 8 verse 7 says, The carnal mind is hostile to God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Romans 3.11 says, There is none who understands. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, most, most people simply do not believe their hearts are that bad. Most people do not believe that they really need a heart transplant. They think that they are pretty good and that uh, their mind, their will, their conscience, their emotions, yeah, it's got a little bit of bad in there, but primarily it's a good thing. This is why Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The unregenerate, he says, is so self-deceived, he doesn't even understand his own heart. Okay, turn with me. This is a really interesting verse here to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 38. <clears throat> this is uh, uh, Solomon who is uh, praying at the dedication of the temple. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel... When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple. I want you to notice that phrase, knows the plague of his own heart. That is a sign of regeneration. The unregenerate simply do not know the depths of depravity of their heart. They're constantly fooling themselves into thinking they don't have a heart plague and they don't see their heart as being as desperately ugly as God says that it is. Now, unregenerate man does have a plague in his heart, but it's not until he's regenerated that he suddenly sees with horror the total plague that is in his heart. Regeneration causes us to see aright. Okay, turn to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. <clears throat> then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Now, how do people return to God with their whole heart? Well, it's only if God gives them a new heart. Look at Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. Can you see the imagery that he's using there? Every single metaphor of regeneration, the person who is being regenerated is passive. It's God who is actively working upon his heart. He cannot respond to God until God uh, uh, does this heart uh, transplant. Uh, Scripture in Ephesians 2 verse 1 likens regeneration to a resurrection from the dead. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead. 
A corpse can't do anything but lie there. It's God who raises the corpse uh, from the dead. The Bible speaks of regeneration as being a new creation. Well, how did God create? Did creation come into being all on its own through evolutionary processes over billions of years? No. Uh, Mike has uh, demonstrated in the past that it came instantly. God spoke creation into existence. Well, take a look at he, how he compares that event uh, to regeneration. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a sovereign work of God. We call this monergism. One person alone who is working. Monergism means God alone is active in our regeneration. I've had people object to this Calvinistic doctrine of a closed heart and they say that can't possibly be right because I know people who seek after God. People who, who worship God. And I would say, well, think of Lydia. She worshipped God before her heart was opened. Did she not? She was a worshiper of God, and yet her heart was closed. I want you to look with me to Matthew 15, verse 8. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. He says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You can see people out there who look like Christians. They go to every church meeting, every prayer meeting. They're religious like Lydia, and yet their hearts are closed. I knew one man in our previous church who, when he would uh, be singing praise songs, it looked like there was ecstasy on his face. You know, he was just really into the worship music. And uh, you would just be absolutely certain this person has a heart that is soft to God. And yet when the girl that he was after in our church was not going to uh, go along with what he wanted, he left the church and left the faith completely. Here was a man who honored God with his mouth, with his lips. He was worshiping God and yet his heart was far from God. We need to be careful making our distinctions from the Scripture, not what, from what we see out there. Our theology needs to be built upon the book. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15. <clears throat> says, But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Now, that's a remarkable description of depravity. It's saying... The heart is so covered over with a veil that it completely blocks out the light of the gospel. It's veiled, and the veil has to be taken away. It's no wonder that Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ephesians 4.18 describes the heart of Lydia and every other person who has not yet been regenerated when it says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Now, that's been a long list of Scriptures, but I think it's important background to understand what was going on in Lydia's life. So turn with me back to Acts 16 
Acts 16 and verse 14. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. There was nothing wrong with her physical ears. It was her heart, her spiritual ears, her spiritual eyes uh, that were wrong. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. So notice you can worship God. You can be as lost as sin. Uh, Some of you may be in the state of Lydia. You're worshippers with closed hearts. Okay, now... Praise God. The text goes on to describe His sovereign mercy. The Lord opened her heart. It doesn't say she opened her heart. It doesn't say Paul opened her heart. This was a sovereign act of God in doing open heart surgery. The Lord opened her heart. It was the first sign of life within her. Until He did that, she could not respond uh, in faith. But notice, as soon as she is regenerated, God gives her faith. The text says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That's faith. Notice the heart has to be changed before there is faith. Now, Arminians say the exact opposite. They say that faith precedes regeneration. When you believe, then you'll get born again. This puts the exact opposite order. You can't livingly give faith until God gives you life. Uh, The corpse can't act, you could say, until God resurrects that corpse. Uh, to be able to act. I have scriptures written on the back of your outline uh, uh, that shows this regeneration resulting in faith and repentance and love. And the first one is the text I just read, but look at the second one, Jeremiah 24, 7. Then I will give them a heart, there is the regeneration, to know me that I am the Lord. There is the resultant conversion. Until you're given new life, you cannot livingly exercise faith. 1 John 5, verse 1, uses the perfect tense of the Greek to describe being born again. And it uses the present tense to describe our faith. Okay, The perfect tense means that being born again occurs before the faith with an abiding result that comes out of that. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This means that no person can believe for even one second without already having been born of God. Can you see that? Okay. Now, you read some of the other Scriptures on your own. I'm not going to go through the the rest of those. But all of those demonstrate that salvation is 100% a work of God's grace and we cannot take any credit even for our faith because our faith is a gift of God. It's no wonder then that the Bible speaks of faith and repentance over and over as a gift of His grace. He sovereignly gives faith to some. He does not give to others. John 6, verse 44, No one can come to Me, that's faith, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Acts 3.16 speaks of the faith which comes through Him. Acts 18.27 speaks of those who had believed through grace. Ephesians 1.19 speaks of us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. We could not believe unless His mighty power was at work within us. Ephesians 2.8 calls faith a gift of God. Acts 5.31 says that God gives repentance. And Acts 11.18 says God grants repentance. And even the sudden interest that Lydia now shows in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, in good works, she's showing great interest now in serving the church. That flows from a regenerated heart and from God's grace. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in it. Okay, he chose even the works. He is sovereign. Philippians 2.13, uh, which was later written to this church, says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's grace, sovereign grace, nothing but grace. Now, when you begin to see that God's sovereignty covers it all, then infant baptism begins to make sense to you as well. And the reason for that is because it's not our choice that is the critical thing, but God's choice that is the critical thing. And God gave infant baptism in the Old Testament. He gave infant circumcision. Both were identical to symbolize the fact we are passive in our regeneration. It is God's choice, not our choice, that makes all of the difference. Now, in these verses, it's only Lydia who believes, and yet her whole household is baptized. On what basis? God's choice. God says, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Now, think of the implications of this. If it's His choice that's the old determining thing, it's so encouraging. If God has chosen to place our children into the covenant, we can have confidence that our children will grow up to be regenerated, to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not by accident that the vast majority of people who come to faith in the last 2,000 years have been children of believers. It's not by accident. This is God's choice. This is the way that God works. And so rejoice in God's sovereign choice. It gives you comfort for your children. This is why Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. And so we can rest in His sovereign grace, His sovereign mercy, His sovereign goodness. And once you have tasted of God's sovereign grace, you cannot, but, you cannot help but uh, serve God's people as Lydia does in verse 15. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Brothers and sisters, I call you to glory in the doctrine of sovereign grace. Amen. Father, we thank You. Thank You. Thank You so much for Your sovereign grace which took us when we were rebels, uh, which loved us when we were still alienated from You. Uh, which uh, purchased for us every uh, conceivable blessing and stored it for us in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places long before we had any inkling of desire for You. We bless You, Father, that grace begins and continues and finishes that work that You have begun in us, that You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of Your work within Your church. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would be filled with gratitude to You uh, for the incredible work that You have worked within us and that when we engage in missions, we would do so with the confidence that uh, Your Word, when it is preached, will irresistibly draw the elect uh, to salvation. Give us a joy. Give us an encouragement, an enthusiasm to spread Your Word and to uh, watch as new souls come to faith. We love You, Father. It is a glory, it is a privilege to be able to serve You as Lydia began to serve You immediately upon being regenerated. And I pray that everyone in this congregation would not only grow up uh, to uh, put their faith in You and to serve You with whole hearts, uh, but, Father, would rejoice in being able to serve each other and to lay down their lives for the brethren. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.